Yo, Mike, if you only have four weeks with a client or athlete, what do you do? First off, uh, if somebody says you only have four weeks to do something with somebody, I'm not taking that client. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to talk about 10 programming tips that I wish I would have known when I was starting out. Now, the weird thing about this industry is that the longer you do it, the less you remember about what it was like to be a total newbie. But, you know, like I had some pretty big L's early on in my career. Uh, You know, the first day in the athletic weight room, basically getting laughed at because of my weakness in the squat. Um, You know, just having no clue what it took to be a really successful strength coach to, man, the first training program that I legitimately wrote for myself, having never thrown up in all of my sporting career, right? Basketball conditioning, cross country, all that. Never threw up the first strength program I wrote for myself. I actually vomited. So (laughs) needless to say, I've taken some L's along the way, but I think that's where I can help you, right? I am not afraid to share my losses, to share the mistakes that I made over the years. So What I tried to do was just compile 10 things that I wish I would have known when I was starting out. And we run the gamut here, right? We're going to talk about how long your training program should be, ways to constrain your load or to make sure that your intensity is where you want it to be. We're going to talk about the foundational stuff. And and I mean, we're going to range from X's and O's tactics that you can use to some of the bigger picture philosophical things that I want you to think about putting yourself in your clients, your athletes shoes so that ultimately you have more empathy. You can relate with them better. And over the long haul, you can create these really strong bonds, forge these relationships that allow you to see long-term success with the clients and athletes you coach. So, I mean, I don't know if you can tell, like I'm super excited about this show. I think there's a lot of value here. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into with the 10 programming tips I wish I would have known when I was starting out. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients, and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym, And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train 
so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the cert only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next complete coach certification launches. Okay, so the first thing I wish I would have known when I was starting to write programs was that it's okay to tease out training blocks. And I realize this is something I've talked about numerous times over the years, but I remember sharing it publicly. It was probably five, six, maybe seven years ago now. I don't know. All the years kind of blend together at a physical prep summit. But I remember very clearly why this came to mind, because I've always had this wide range of people that I've coached. I've got my gin pop clients on one hand, and then I've got some of these savages that play in the NBA, the NFL, the MLS. And I remember being in the gym one day with a guy named Clayton Gathers. He was a safety for the Colts at that point in time. And Clayton had dealt with some lower back stuff. He dealt with some knee stuff. So we were working on an RDL. And I very clearly remember two or three reps in, he's like, man, this is kind of hurting my back. And two or three reps in, it was very clear why it was hurting his back because he had this massive lordosis and he was getting all this compression on the backside. Now, keep in mind, this guy had RDL'd for who knows how many years, right? He was, had been in the pros for a couple years and he'd probably been lifting since high school. So let's say he'd been doing the RDL in this way for eight, nine, maybe as long as 10 years. So I said, okay, well, let's switch things up. All I want you to do is use soft knees, think long spine and try and push your hips straight back. I don't care how far you move, just really try and load your hamstrings without arching your back. So the second set is an immediate improvement, not perfect, but big improvement. And by the third set, I mean, these were basically flawless RDLs. I mean, it was mind blowing to me to think that somebody can learn an activity that quickly. So you've got that on one end of the spectrum, but then on the other end, our gen pop clients, man, it may take them four weeks, but in a lot of times it might take six, eight, maybe even as long as 10 or 12 weeks to really dial in and learn a movement. So this is a lesson that I keep coming back to. And I think part of it is when you write programs for people, whether it's online or offline, a lot of people are conditioned that they need to mix things up, right? And, and even on my end as a coach and as a program designer, I feel sometimes compelled to like tweak things and change things because that's what people are paying me to do. But we have to shift that. We have to get away from that mindset because it's not about just changing things up for the sake of change. It's about changing things to elicit an adaptation. So this is something that I'm going to start doing a lot more, not only with my gin pop people that I see uh, in the gym, but especially for my online clients where I can't see them as much. We can't have some of those more frequent interactions. I'm going to start teasing their cycles out probably to at least six weeks because what I find is by week three or four, they're really just now starting to lock down the movement. 
They need more time. They need to be able to feel the right things. They need time to be able to progress. Because sometimes in that first week or two, you're just trying to find the right weights, right? It takes a little bit of time to figure out, okay, what is my strength level really at? How do I perform this movement? So if you're changing things up by week three or four, it's too fast. They haven't gotten to really dive in and feel that movement and milk that adaptation. So that's one thing I wish I would have known early on. It's okay to tease out your training blocks. Adaptation doesn't necessarily happen in four weeks. Sometimes you need six or even as long as eight weeks to get a really effective change in adaptation for your clients. Okay, the second thing I wish I would have known when I was starting out was it's so powerful to find ways to constrain your loading. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about how I've grown up in a certain day and age of strength and conditioning, of physical preparation, but when I was coming up, everything revolved around 1RMs. And, you know, you did your test week and you maxed out, and if your max was 400, you based your entire training cycle around that. Well, fast forward 10, 12, 15 years, and we started to realize, oh, wait, like, A lot can go into that 1RM. And most importantly, 1RMs fluctuate hugely on a day-to-day basis. And I believe it was M. Mladen Jovanovic that talked about this years ago, but I think he said there's as much as an 18% difference either way in your 1RM on any given day. Now, that number seems huge to me. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but let's just say it's 20%, right? Just to make the numbers easy. So that means... On test day, if you squatted 400, on any given day, your range could be as little as 320 on a lift and as high as 480. That's absolutely mind-blowing to me. Okay, so I want to find ways to constrain load and program in such a way that allows me to hit that targeted adaptation on a daily basis. And I think, especially when you go back to this idea of just loading in general, you get two ends of the spectrum. When I was at Ball State, when we were powerlifting, when I was around football players, a lot of times the end goal is always add more weight, right? Doesn't matter. Oh, I did 315 last week. I got to do 325 this week or 335 this week. Like the goal is always to put on more weight. And I used to have this battle, not too bad, with G, but G coming from that football mindset of, oh man, I did this last week. I got to go up this week. So finding ways to constrain these guys that want to push each and every week, whether it's there or not, is important. And on the flip side of that, when I started working with the Indy 11, I clearly remember there were two guys, I won't name their names because I love them, uh, and we ended up having a great relationship in the weight room and they started to understand how I could help them uh, as the years went on. But man, these two bros came in every week and trap barred 150 pounds for one year straight. You know, didn't matter how much I ridiculed them, didn't matter if, you know, I put uh, my high school girls uh, that were, you know, playing soccer at the time, they're coming in, they were trap barring 170, 180, somewhere up to like 200 pounds at this point in time, didn't matter. I could not shame these guys into using more weight. So you have to find ways to constrain load. And around 2014, 2015, we got a gym aware at iFast. If you're unfamiliar with Gym Aware, it's a velocity-based training tool, and it just basically tells you how fast you're performing a lift. I remember at the time, Tony Giuliano and Ty Terrell were at the gym, and they're like, oh, we got to get it. We got to get it. And 
to be frank, I was still kind of in that mindset of, oh, just, you know, use your eyes or, you know, push just a little bit every week. But these guys were adamant. And it didn't take me long to fall in love with VVT because I started using it with one of the combine prep guys that I was training at the time. And I remember we did like a VVT test at the start of his training block because we were prepping him for that 225 bench test. And it was so cool because literally once we found like where he produced peak force and we trained in that zone for three, four weeks, I mean, literally we were putting like 30 pounds on this dude's bench press in a month just because we were training and targeting the specific adaptation that we wanted. So I loved that aspect of it. I love the ability to auto-regulate because we all know if you've lifted long enough, there are certain days you're in the gym and like weights are flying, right? So if it says to go up to 80% and you're using that old tired 1RM percentage, man, that's going to be an easy training day. But if you feel awful and you're supposed to go in the gym and use 80%, you might get stapled. So I always want to find tools that allow me to make training outcomes more objective. And VBT is one way you can do that. So whether it's using VBT, whether it's uh, using uh, less fancy tools or tech, I remember Bill used to do, hey, uh, I want you to do three reps of squats in three seconds or five reps in five, five seconds. And so you just work up to whatever load you can do in that time period, and that's how you would train for speed or strength development. And so there's a lot of ways you can do this, but find ways to constrain load and dictate intensity. It will make an absolutely huge difference in your programs. The third thing I wish I would have known when I first started writing programs was to build the foundation first. (laughs) And it's funny because I came from a certain era of strength and conditioning where A few things had to happen, right? If you were a great coach, you owned a gym. Machines were absolutely worthless. Uh, If you weren't doing heavy compound lifts every time you were in the gym, you weren't training right. (laughs) And I write notes when I'm, I'm creating these and I put this smiley face next to the word Smith machine because the Smith machine was the most vilified piece of equipment you could have in your gym. Like if you went into somebody's gym and they had a Smith machine immediately, you knew they weren't legit. But... Let's be honest, I wasn't 100% immune to that, but I always tried to beat to my own drum, right? I always tried to not get pushed around by some of uh, the mantras and the mindsets of the certain day and age. So if you go back and you read the articles that I was writing at T-Nation at that point in time, I was talking about mobility. I was talking about single leg and split stance activities. I was talking about the role of push-ups versus just strictly supine pressing all the time. But if I could do it all over again, I think I'd become even more broad in my approach because I was so laser focused on strength at all costs early on. And not that strength's a bad thing because I don't think it is, right? There, there's limits to everything, right? And, and all the things that we do in and out of the gym are a bell curve. There's a sweet spot. There's not enough and there's too much. But I think I put too much emphasis on strength, and I think I would take a step back and try and be more well-rounded. So a few things that I've obviously come to realizations to over the past couple years. Number one, machines are fine. Using machines uh, are not necessarily a bad thing, and especially in rehabilitative settings, I think they can be hugely impactful. 
A lot of the basketball guys that I've dealt with over the years have knee stuff, or the football players have knee stuff, even soccer. So getting some isolated quadricep, hamstring, uh, lower leg, calf, soleus, Achilles work in has made a huge difference on how these guys feel. It's helped build up uh, those specific muscles to certain strength standards so that when we put those back into actual movements, now they move and feel better. So I'd say machines are fine and they can play a role. A second thing that I think is hugely important is aerobic development. And I've talked about it for many, many years now, the role and the impact that Joel Jameson has had on my career. But man, I just didn't pay any attention to aerobic development early on. I was very much of the mindset that you can play your way into shape or that, you know, just magically you'd show up to training camp and you'd get through it and you'd be okay. Man, that's just not the case, especially at high levels of sport. And I think this is something that's not talked about enough. I think in general, the young athletes of today's day and age, they are not getting enough just free play. They're not getting enough general aerobic development. Everything that they do is specific. And I think ultimately that's holding them back developmentally. They're not going to become the best possible athlete they could because they're not getting some of the aerobic adaptations early on that can give them this really broad, wide foundation to build from. And then a third thing that I think I would put even more emphasis on was just mobility and keeping my clients, my athletes feeling great for a lifetime. And I mean, it's weird to think about this because Eric and I put out Magnificent Mobility, I believe it was in 2006. But man, if I could go back to even earlier, right? Like 2000, 2001, make sure that all of my clients, all of my athletes are very mobile, right? They can move well, they feel good. They've got this broad general aerobic base. Man, I think if you can start your clients and athletes really wide and really broad early on, it gives you the foundation to really create a high peak to your pyramid. So that's the third thing I wish I would have known early on is that it's so important to build your foundation first. Okay, something that I have preached on over the years, but it took me a while to figure out. Number four, make your clients and athletes feel successful. And again, I know I've talked about this a lot over the years, but I think this is one of those points that just has to be driven home time and time and time again, because a lot of cases, the longer we do this, the longer it's been since we've been a newbie or since we've been a student of anything. So you start to forget what it's like to struggle, what it's like to fail. And, you know, this was really kind of thrown in my face this past weekend. So my daughter, Kendall, has been working so hard on her soccer lately. And it's so cool because you're literally seeing these improvements in her game each and every week. But one thing she struggles with is juggling. And you put her on a soccer pitch and you let her dribble or pass or shoot and she looks really good. But unfortunately, when they're evaling these girls and trying to figure out, okay, what team should this girl play on? One of the things they look at first is juggling. And if you can't juggle very well, they immediately assume you don't have good ball skills or you're not a competent soccer player. So we told Kendall, hey, look, if you want to continue to level up, if you want to play at higher levels, then this is something you got to work on. So we said, hey, let's just try like five minutes a day. I know you don't love it, but let's go five minutes a day. And the first day out, I mean, <laughs> it was pretty rough, right? She's dropping the ball from like above her head. She's trying to kick the ball when it's at her waist versus letting it come down low to the ground. I mean, it was a disaster. 
And then she was getting mad at Jesse and I because we're trying to help her and critique her. So I just said, hey, let's just go watch a YouTube video, right? I'm not like a skilled soccer juggler. Let's watch what some of the pros do. We watched a couple videos and lo and behold, what's one of the first things they tell you to do? Find ways to be successful early on. Don't get frustrated. So they show you some techniques, right? Like, hey, drop the ball, kick it, catch it. Don't try and juggle day one. Drop it, catch it, drop it, catch it, get comfortable, right? So now let's take this same concept of soccer juggling and bring it into the gym. Imagine you have a client who comes in the gym and they're struggling with everything, right? And I've had these people, right? Just imagine that person. They can't squat, they can't hinge, they can't split squat, they can't push up, everything hurts, right? Imagine being in that person's body, in their brain. Do they want to come back to the gym? No. Nobody wants to feel unsuccessful when they're in the gym. So this is why such a big part of my philosophy, especially with gin pop clients, is to make the activities early on. Whatever activity I deem acceptable for them, I might go a half notch or a full notch, right? I might take them back a full regression when we start that actual workout, knowing full well that they'll probably do it well. And then, boom, hype show's starting. Man, you're killing this. Like, I thought this was going to take you a month. You figured it out in a week or two. So the psychology is totally shifted. It's totally different when somebody feels successful early on versus when they feel like a failure or when they don't feel like they're measuring up. So sometimes it's with an outcome, right? Like, oh man, I put you in half kneeling, but you're crushing that. Let's move on to this split squat. And sometimes it's just showing empathy. Right? It's showing them that you're there for them, that you're willing to support them. Right, and you're, you're there to care for the human being that's standing in front of you. But find ways to make people feel successful. If you can do this and if you can strong create those, those strong connections and forge those strong bonds with your clients and athletes, I guarantee you're going to be more successful. Okay, the fifth thing I wish I would have known when I started writing workouts is how important it is to find immediate wins, okay? Now, again, when I was at Ball State, you might write a training block for your football team and it takes 12 weeks to reap those gains and to see you know, those, those athletes getting stronger in their front squat or in their back squat or in their power clean. If you're writing a program for a power lifter, it may be as long as four, five, six months before they get back to that realization phase and they start to peak and they're like, oh my gosh, no, now I'm really killing it. And this also comes back to my story with Kendall, right? Instead of, hey, I need you to juggle the ball 50 times, it's like, no, today I need you to uh, just work on dropping it and catching it. How many in a row can you do like that? Oh man, Kendall, you're killing that. Now, can we just get two touches, right? So literally the first day we do this, she cannot do two touches. To save her life, she did not get two touches, right? The ball's flying everywhere, her legs up by her face. It was awful. So the second day, that's when we watched the video. Now we have her do this drop catch routine and she starts getting twos. Now all of a sudden, she's getting a little bit more confident. She's like, oh, this is fun. Now she's getting threes. She got a couple four touches, right? Now, if you follow people that juggle, that's not super impressive, but literally in a one day time span, She went from not being able to juggle it twice to being able to juggle it four times, okay? So you gotta find immediate wins. Bill Hartman is amazing with this. And I remember him 
telling me this and he's espoused this for years, but one of the reasons he has such great success in the purple room isn't just because of the color. It's because he's got this ability to demonstrate immediate change. When somebody comes in and they've got zero degrees of shoulder IR, and with two or three activities, he buys them 45, 70, maybe even 90 degrees of shoulder IR, you best believe that person is walking out a believer. They think, this is the guy to help me get out of pain once and for all. So some things to think about. If you're working with somebody that wants to get stronger, can you find some way early on to maybe improve their setup or dial in their technique that makes them perform better? Probably, right? If you're a skilled trainer and you've been doing this for any period of time, a few subtle tweaks and somebody's probably gonna perform better. They're not necessarily stronger, right? But in their mind, they are. They just moved more weight than they had or it felt more effortless. If you're training a body comp client and maybe you're doing some nutrition for them, just locking in some steady nutrition and some steady training, can you improve their numbers even a little bit? We know long-term impactful body composition changes take time and that's okay. But people are shocked. Like if they just get consistent training for a month, you know, you come in the gym two, three times a week, you walk on your off days, you lock your macros down, maybe you get rid of a little bit of carbs, you get some more protein in your diet, immediately they lose a couple pounds. Find ways to get immediate changes. If you're rehabbing somebody, right? If you're in Bill's world, can you reduce their pain to some degree? If somebody's had a seven out of 10 shoulder pain for the last year and in one session you get it down to a four or a three or a two, that's a win. So find ways to, to stack wins early on. You start stacking wins, you improve buy-in, and when you improve buy-in, now you have that long-term runway where you can see real, long-term, meaningful, and impactful change. So find ways to get immediate wins early. Okay, number six, track multiple KPIs. So I talk a lot about playing the long game, but playing the long game is fine as long as you know what you should be tracking and measuring to make sure you're creating meaningful and impactful change. So for me, I know I've rambled about this numerous times over the last six to 12 months, but force plates are a huge winner for me just because they allow me to track so many different measurables across multiple tests. So I can look at somebody's squat jump, their counter movement jump, their rebound jump, their isometric mid-thigh pull. I've got all these tests, and within all those tests, I've got all these different metrics that I can track. But when you start talking about KPIs, you have to start with the goal first, and then determine the KPIs that are important to you. So one thing I wanted to do in this episode that maybe I haven't always done a great job of in the past is give really like specific cases and ways that I'm using this. So for instance, right now, when we're talking about KPIs, I'm working with a basketball guy who is going through a pretty lengthy knee rehab process. And based on his timeline, he should maybe be on the court or ramping up, but he's not there. So what are his KPIs? at this point, how do I get him from step one to step two? Well, for this guy, based on the assessment that we did, based on the things that I've seen with him moving in the gym, he's gotta restore his range of motion first, 
right? He has to get ankles, knees, and hips bending in such a way so that he can distribute load. It's not all going through his knee. He's got to go back and do just a basic anatomical adaptation phase. We got to build connective tissue strength. Get the quads, the hams, the soleus strong. He's got to consistently find his heels. Now, I know this doesn't sound like the coolest or most objective KPI, but left to his own devices, this guy's heels will not touch the ground. So I have to reinforce this in every activity that we do. And of course, the end goal of all this is to decrease pain. Nobody wants to go on a basketball court or a soccer pitch and have knee pain, right? You're constantly thinking about, oh my gosh, what can I do? What can I not do? Is this going to elicit more pain? Nobody wants to deal with that. So we've got to decrease knee pain. Once we've done those basically four things, then we can move them on to level two. So I've got my basketball guy. I've got this football player that I've been working with. Collegiate level guy. Looks like uh, Maurice Jones Drew. He's a little bowling ball of a human being. But he came to me because he said, look, I don't change levels particularly well. I've got poor change of direction. And when you watch him move, and based on Bill's evaluation, there's a reason for that, right? So our KPIs for this gentleman are his table test with Bill. We want to see his relative motions improving. Uh, his counter movement and his rebound counter movement jumps for me are very important. He's actually a very elastic creature. So I actually want to teach him to yield a little bit more effectively. He might be too stiff. So what happens is he goes into that cut. He can't change levels. He can't yield even a little bit. Well, no, he's not going to be able to slow down. So this is a guy that's going to look great in a straight line, maybe in between the tackles, but he's going to lack some shiftiness and some elusiveness. So maybe not trying to make him world-class at change of direction, but giving him enough so he's a more well-rounded runner. And then, of course, when you're talking about body comp clients, because we all have body comp clients, right? My trifecta there of KPIs are always scale weight, body comp, and measurements, right? So like, uh, like circumference measurements. So what that allows us to do when we have all these different KPIs is that even if one doesn't move in the best direction, if you're tracking three, four, or five things and most of them are going up, it's like the stock market, right? Like there's an ebb and a flow, there's ups and downs and that's okay. But as long as the long-term trend is upward, we're winning. And that's the same way it is when we're tracking KPIs. You know, one may be down or, you know, one or two may even be down a little bit. But over the long term, if we're tracking them and we're doing the right things in the gym and with our training, ultimately we're going to see this long-term upward trend, which was what we need to get that long-term change and that impactful change over the long haul. Okay, the seventh thing I wish I would have known when I first started writing programs is the importance of aggressively eliminating weaknesses. Now, I think this whole argument is kind of dumb. I feel like people love to argue about, oh, should you maximize your strengths or should you eliminate your weaknesses? And again, I get it, but I think it's kind of dumb. Do you want to maximize your strengths? Of course. Like, of course, if you're a power lifter and your goal is to be strong, like get stupid strong. If you want to be an endurance athlete, be well-conditioned. If you want to be a basketball player, be bouncy and fast and explosive. But weaknesses, at least in my opinion, are what hold our clients and athletes back from maximizing their potential. So there are certain little chinks in the armor. There are little pieces of kryptonite that keep us from becoming Superman or Superwoman. And I see this all the time. 
right? Like I've worked with a pretty decent amount of power lifters over the years and just really strong human beings. And, you know, their limiting factor in a lot of cases is they just do no metabolic work, no conditioning. Uh, they do no mobility work. So their movement capacity and their recovery is God awful. And they wonder why they're constantly getting injured or they're constantly getting hurt. The endurance athletes that I've worked with over the years, the people that will go out and gladly run 10, 15, 20 miles, you know, five, six days a week, but won't spend even 30 minutes in the gym actually building some strength and some connective tissue development that will help them stay healthy and, and doing the things that they love. You know, the rehab client or athlete who skips steps in their rehab and doesn't eliminate the low-level weaknesses that we talked about earlier. Maybe it's in a calf or a hamstring or a rotator cuff. You know, it's really hard if you have these glaring weaknesses to truly maximize your strengths, right? Because at some point in time, these low-level things become rate limiters. They are the things that hold you back and don't allow you to achieve peak levels of success. Now, one of the most common questions I get is, is some, form or, some form or fashion is this, yo, Mike, if you only have four weeks with a client or athlete, what do you do? And at first, I think I was remiss to say it like this, but I'm going to be really direct now. First off, uh, if somebody says you only have four weeks to do some something with somebody, I'm not taking that client. I'm just not. I, I play the long game. I need people that are committed to the long game. But the second thing, and I think this is really important to note, if I only have four weeks with somebody, it doesn't change my approach at all. Not one bit. If somebody has limitations in their aerobic development, and that's their rate limiter, we're fixing that. If it's their mobility, we're fixing that. If it's their ability to demonstrate relative motion, that's what we're fixing. Because here's the thing, like you can focus on, oh, but they have X, Y, and Z, that's fine. But if something has been identified as a weakness, I'm always attacking that low-hanging fruit first because that's the most impactful thing I can do. I can do the other stuff. Right? I can continue to drive home this fact that they're great at strength or they're great at conditioning, whatever the case may be. But if they don't address those weaknesses first, right? if we don't chase and, and grab hold of that low-hanging fruit, we're not going to get the best or most desirable outcome. So you've got to aggressively eliminate weaknesses. Focus on strengths, yes. Maximize strengths, yes. But recognize the fact that if you don't aggressively eliminate weaknesses and rate limiters, your clients and your athletes will not see the success that they should. Okay, number eight, work to line up all your variables. Make all of your program design variables congruent. Okay, so when I start talking about all these, we're talking about your time under tension or your tempo, your sets and reps the intensity you're using, your rest period. They all have to be congruent and they all have to fit together to write a really well-functioning program. So case in point, go out to a track and sprint 400 meters. Not walk, not jog, sprint 400 meters. How long does it take to recover? I mean, even if you're in great shape, probably quite a bit of time. Right? It's funny, you hear these people talk about doing 400 meter repeats every minute, like, good luck, good luck, you are going to be miserable, my friend. But if you sprint 400 meters, intensity is high, it's going to take a long time to recover, right? Now, 
Go to the opposite end of that spectrum. Go out and walk 400 meters. How long does it take you to recover? Probably not long, right? And, and this is just common sense. So why, why do we fail to understand this concept when it comes to training and lifting in the gym, right? It's very simple. If intensity is high, we must rest to recover. I don't care if you're doing a 3RM, a 5RM, 10RM, 1RM, what it, does, it doesn't matter. If intensity is high, you need time to rest and recover. And, you know, the old mantra was that the nervous system takes five to six times as long to recover as the metabolic system. But Charlie Francis, the esteemed uh, speed coach of Ben Johnson back in the day, said it would take 20 times as long. Okay, so even if you're doing a one rep max, right, metabolically, there's not a huge cost there, but nervous system wise, it's going to take a long time to recover. Okay, so if intensity is high, rest has to be high. Now, flip that. If intensity is low, we don't need as much rest, right? If you're doing like 10 reps and it's like a five or a six out of 10, intensity is not high. So you don't need the same amount of recovery time and probably want incomplete rest because you're chasing a metabolic adaptation anyways. Really screwed that up. Metabolic adaptation. So you got to line up all these variables, right? If you're chasing a metabolic adaptation, generally volume is going to be relatively high. Intensity is going to be moderate, probably at best. And as a result, with low to moderate intensity, rest doesn't have to be incomplete. 30, 60, maybe as long as 90 seconds. Now, flip that. If you're going with a very nervous system focused program, whether it's in the gym or on the track, hey, you're you're going to need high intensity. High intensity equals low total volume. Low total volume and high intensity equals long rest periods. Okay? So just remember, if you want to make a great program, and it doesn't matter whether you're trying to create a world-class power lifter or Olympic lifter or somebody that's just lean and shredded for summer, you've got to line up all of the variables. Make sure they're all congruent and they all fit together so that you write a really seamless and cohesive program. All right, getting close to the end, my friend. Number nine, kind of bouncing off or, or kind of springboarding off that last point, use tempo judiciously. And I remember when I was getting started, tempo was probably the coolest thing that I learned when I was just getting started. Because, you know, even in like the NSCA textbook, they talk about sets and reps, they talk about intensity. But this was like one of the things that they never really talked about at least back in the day, unless you were more on like the cutting edge. And it's funny, they used to have these huge uh, arguments on the internet. What's better, the three number system or the four number system? Are you a three number guy or are you a four number guy? Are you an Ian King guy or are you a Charles Poliquin guy? Now, the bottom line here is this. I think tempo is an invaluable tool if you use it judiciously. Because I see some coaches that get so mired, they get so bogged down in the details of writing programs, they fail to recognize the fact that tempo is just one tool in your toolbox. And I talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about isometrics and how I use them, but let's dive just a little bit deeper, right? Like you've got just the standard like concentric tempo, just like overcoming. But I think where things get a lot more exciting is when you start teasing out like the isometrics, uh, when you start teasing out longer eccentric durations, uh, when you start incorporating plyometrics into 
the equation. And I actually talk about this quite a bit in the complete coach cert, shameless plug there. If you haven't got it, check out the complete coach cert. But tempo is really just manipulating the stretch shortening cycle to bias either more muscular or more connective tissue loading. So when I really slow things down, I take away that connective tissue response. If I really speed things up and I make things bouncy and quick, now I'm much more focused on the connective tissues. So a couple examples here, again, because I wanted to talk, uh, I'll give you guys a lot more specific examples versus just waxing philosophical. But coming back to my knee rehab guy, we talked about how he had uh, some restrictions in range of motion. And a lot of times restrictions in range of motion are either due to poor joint position or concentric muscle activity. Muscle just won't shut off. Therefore, you know, like let's say your quad just won't shut off. Well, you're not going to have knee flexion if your quad is concentrically active all the time. So with this guy, to help kind of shut off some of that concentric muscle activity, we're doing a lot of slow tempos. We're doing a lot of long duration isos to try and get that stress relaxation, to get some of that eccentric reorientation of the muscle. Yielding isos are another one that I absolutely love, right? Again, talking about reducing concentric muscle activity. Uh, people are, are debating this, but there's potential benefits to the tendons. Maybe not for some of the reasons that we think, but certain people absolutely benefit very, very much from incorporating yielding isos into their training programs. Overcoming isos, right? Using those really quick, fast, explosive isometric activities to increase RFD, to improve speed, power, and explosiveness. But I think what it really comes down to is, look, there's a time and a place to use tempo, right? Make sure you know why. And in some cases, it just doesn't matter, right? Like if you want to tease out a certain adaptation or you want to target a specific tissue, by all means, use tempo. But some people just need to get in the gym and lift. They need to get in the gym and get stronger. So that's where your two zero one tempo, right? Like that's my standard. That's my go-to is like two seconds down, no pause, one second up, right? Just a nice smooth controlled rep, two zero one or DYN for dynamic. Those are two of my staple tempos because sometimes I don't want people thinking about performing things at a certain cadence, I'm more focused on them performing the activity correctly. Like that's the most important thing. So I think you always have to come back and you ask, ask yourself these two questions. What do you want, right? What do you want to get out of this activity? Do you want to target muscles? Do you want to target connective tissues? And then once you kind of have an answer, now ask yourself why? Like what is the end goal here? What adaptation am I chasing with this client or with this athlete. But I think if you use tempo judiciously, man, it can be a powerful tool to have in your arsenal. Last but not least, number 10, and this is kind of like a global philosophical viewpoint of mine, but when you're writing programs, when you're coaching your clients and athletes, don't forget to have fun, right? Like I really, really like my job most days of the week, like dream job, you know, other than if I was, 20 something and single and working for like a professional sports team, I have literally created the job and the scenario that works best for both me and my family. Even with a full schedule, most days, it doesn't feel like work. I could go and record podcasts, shoot videos, train clients and athletes, uh, hell, even go coach my kids in soccer or basketball or baseball, whatever sport they're playing, it doesn't feel like work. I'm tired at the end of the day, but it doesn't feel 
like work. I don't dread any moment of it. But if it ever does, right, and these days are so few and far between, when I start to get like this, it's because I'm forgetting to enjoy the work. I'm forgetting to enjoy the process. And practical example here, uh, the other day, uh, I'm in the gym and I'm mopping, right? Because I think every gym owner uh, should respect the dojo. And even if you have paid people that will do the work for you, every now and then it's nice to humble yourself, get in there, take out the trash, clean the toilets, sweep the floor, mop the floor, make the gym just look amazing. And you know, at first I was kind of angry because I'm like, oh man, why am I wasting my Saturday doing this? And then I'm like, no, like I have an amazing gym. I have an amazing client base. When these coaches get in here on Monday morning, they're going to be like, yo, this place looks amazing. So I turned up the music. I don't know why I got a good stretch of music there. I had some Prince. I had some Lenny Kravitz. Uh, man, I'm trying to think what else. Just some banging music in there. Next thing I know, I'd mop the entire gym in like 30 minutes. It looked amazing and I felt great. Right, So mopping the gym, find a way to make it fun. Energy is low in the gym that day. Music is such a huge thing. right? And again, this maybe isn't a program design thing, but man, find ways to drive up the energy. Um, you know, If Dakota's in the gym and I feel like his energy is low, man, I'm putting on the Rocky soundtrack because that always gets him fired up. Ed is like uh, roller skate or skating rink music. Like we'll jive to like old like 70s and 80s like R&B and pop and funk type music. But I think most importantly, here's one of the biggest takeaways. And this is a big philosophical thing that I want you to think about. And I really want you to try and do over the years. When you're first starting out, you have to work with anybody that's willing to pay you. Right? Like that's just the rules of engagement. You have to pay yourself. You have to pay your rent, mortgage, uh, your business expenses, like you have to take whoever is willing to pay you. But I think one of the biggest reasons that my work is fun is because over the years I have slowly called and gotten rid of anybody that wasn't fun to work with. I mean, it's just very simple. Like I work with amazing people. So whether it's a gen pop client that just wants to get stronger, whether it's my athletes, high school, college, pro, doesn't matter. I legitimately love training the people that I work with. So again, maybe not so much a true program design tip, but it's one I wanted to put in here because training, coaching should be fun. You should enjoy it more days than not. And if you don't, you need to ask yourself why that's the case. But for me, if I'm not having fun, there's generally something that I'm missing and there's something that I can do about it to make the work and the process fun again. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode, 10 programming tips I wish I would have known when I got started. Quick recap, number one, tease out your training blocks because adaptations don't always happen in four weeks. Number two, find ways to constrain loading. You don't need people meeting out and pushing 1RMs every week. And if they're doing baby weights every week, they're not getting better either. Uh, number three, build the foundation first. Wide broad, well-developed foundations give you the power and the ability to create really big pyramids over the long haul. Number four, make your clients and athletes feel successful. It starts with exercise selection. Find activities they can do successfully early on and then build them up from there. Number five, kind of from the same vein, find ways to get immediate wins. Whether it's choosing the right activities, getting them a little bit of success with their strength, with their body comp, with their rehab, 
Finding immediate wins improves long-term buy-in. Number six, track multiple KPIs. If you're tracking one thing and it goes down, man, it's not a great day in the gym. But if you're tracking five, one goes down, four go up, that's a big day, right? Everybody's celebrating. And long-term, impactful changes take time, so make sure you're tracking multiple KPIs that you can lean on to direct your training process. Number seven, aggressively eliminate weaknesses, right? Everybody's got weaknesses. Everybody has chinks in their armor. Find ways to address them early on, aggressively eliminate them so they don't become rate limiters. Number eight, line up all your variables. If you're chasing metabolic changes, make a metabolic-based program. If you're chasing neural changes, whether it's strength or speed or power, create a program that has all of these variables stacked they're seamless and they're congruent. So you get the kind of results that you want. Number nine, use tempo judiciously. Powerful tool, not the be all end all, but use it appropriately and know when you're wanting to use it and know what you're trying to get out of using it. And then number 10, we just talked about it. Don't forget to have fun. Man, we have pretty awesome jobs, right? Like I get to go into the gym. I get to hang out with fun people. I'm in sweatpants most days. I get to listen to music. And ultimately, it's just a fun and engaging environment. We're helping people get better every single day. So don't forget to have fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you had some fun here today because I know I enjoyed recording it. If you did enjoy this episode, one of two small favors. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, do it right now. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store. Wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now. Hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. If you are subscribed, go one step further. Please go to iTunes, give me a rating and a review. Always trying to grow the show, always trying to get it in front of more strength coaches, personal trainers, rehab professionals. Anybody that wants to get better in the space of physical preparation, I think could benefit from listening to this show. And by you giving a rating, you giving a review, it's gonna get the show in front of more people and ultimately help us grow this little mission that we've got here. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.